This content may not be suitable for all listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to Shockingly Wicked. I'm Brittany. (laughs) You forgot a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm Brittany. (laughs) I wanted to give the people something different. It's valid. It's understandable. They they don't always want to hear me. So Uh, we are your hosts for the evening. (laughs) So you're going to hear a special ad later that I really want you guys to listen to. It's from us, so like, don't don't skip. I'll it. just tell them for you, okay? We're gonna be in Dallas, Texas in August. Yes, the end of August. It's over a weekend. We're gonna be there for a festival. We have more information. Thursday through Sunday. Yes, so we'll be there Thursday through Sunday, the end of August. More information will be in that ad. Don't skip it. We want you guys to know about it, but we don't want to take up too much time in the podcast itself. So, if you're in the area, or plan to be in the area let us know all right so (laughs) we delayed recording this one because i was trying to finish a book about the subject and then i didn't even finish the book but i did do plenty of research other than this so that's that's my excuse i heard about this case because i saw an article i think it was by the guardian i have it in the sources for this episode about this thing The title was very intriguing. Let me pull it back up because (laughs) I imagine that it would pull other people in too. Thomas Quick, the Swedish serial killer who never was. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What? So obviously I had to go in and read it. And let me just say it was, it was fascinating. And it just made me kind of like want to learn more about, yeah, I definitely like was just going through and reading a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm just like, what, how is this even possible? But then again, it was also like the nineties when this stuff was happening. So, I mean, (laughs) things have evolved since then to a degree, but it was certainly very interesting. (laughs) You're not wrong. Uh, but it was certainly very interesting seeing, especially because this is also an international case. It, like in the headline it mentioned, it was Swedish, so it's in Sweden. I always find it fascinating. Do you have to get your mom to read it to you? No, my mom doesn't know <laughs> those languages. What language is she? Oh, she French. She's, she's French. She speaks French, German, a dialect from Alsace called Alsatian. Um I don't know if she speaks. So every other otherwise. language but Swedish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so most of the stuff that I read was like translated to English already. There were a few articles that I had to like Google translate <laughs> into English. So some of that information might have been uh, a little sketchy because Google Translate is not accurate, but it is what it is. I got the gist of what I wanted and it was confirmed by other sources. So I don't want you guys being like, oh, she shouldn't have used those sources because I know there's always at least one of you. So we're going to go ahead and talk about Stuart Ragnar Bergwall. I'm going to say this up front. I'm probably going to mispronounce all of these names, and I apologize because uh, it, it's a lot. I don't know I don't know this language. There's a lot of accents and umlauts and things like that, so apologies. But he was born April 26, 1950, in Korsnas, Falun, Sweden. I did look those up. This is apparently a rural part of Sweden. 
he had six siblings, and one of them was his twin sister. Uh, they were the last two to be born into the family. They were raised with strict Pentecostal beliefs, so very strict Christian upbringing, which makes all of this even more fascinating to me. He described himself as a teenage misfit. When he was a teenager, he was interested in theater and writing, called himself creative and ambitious. His sister did say that he was creative, but also called him provocative and manipulative. So that's something to keep in mind <laughs> as we go forth. About the age of 14, he realized he was gay. And obviously, because he was raised in this very strict Christian household, he wanted to hide that from his parents. And he was basically taught to, you know, in Christian beliefs, yeah. A lot of the rhetoric is talking about how homosexuality is a sin. And we're not going to get into that topic of discussion, but they don't treat these people very nicely. Let's just leave it at that. So... He was basically just very ashamed of his sexuality, so he tried to hide it as best he could. This was also 1964-ish, so, like, the times, you know, it's it's not great for being somebody who was gay and finding that out at that age either. Yeah. So, around the same time, he also started to experiment with drugs because, like... Such a great combination. <laughs> Well, when you have something like this, where you're like, you've got a lot of the insecurity and the self-doubt and things like that, a lot of the time when people are repressing that, they are trying to do that by using substances. And so it makes sense that he went for drugs. Sometimes it's at drugs, sometimes alcohol. But addiction is very, very common with people who are in those types of headspaces. So amphetamines were his favorites. Apparently he said they tasted good. And I don't know. I don't know why. What? Uh, what amphetamines was he tasting? Because pretty much all medication tastes disgusting to me. So amphetamines, for those who don't know, are stimulant drugs. They speed up the activity in certain parts of the brain. And I have this quote here, which kind of explains more in depth. Quote, resulting in a feeling of higher energy, focus, confidence, and in a dose-dependent manner can elicit a rewarding euphoria, unquote. So when these things are used legally, it's things like ADHD medication, like Adderall, things like that. But when it's not used in a legal manner or is prescribed, there's things like methamphetamines, you know, ecstasy. Yeah, they're uppers. It's essentially an upper. Yeah, exactly. So when, like I said, when they're used properly, they can help treat ADHD. They can help treat narcolepsy in adults. But there's also a high likelihood of addiction when they're used improperly. Hence the opioid crisis that we've dealt with the last couple of years, you know. His siblings indicated that he might have suffered some head trauma while growing up. So I feel like that's always not like obviously it's not always, but I swear one of the two head trauma or drugs mm-hmm. or something traumatic and it's a good melting pot. Well, and that's usually the case with people who grow up to be, I guess, involved in the law to some degree. They have some sort of 
heavy trauma in their background, especially with like serial killers. They tend to have certain aspects all in common in their pasts. Yeah. There were two incidences that they mentioned specifically. One was at the age of seven. He was learning how to ride a bike. He had been away at a hospital or something for being treated for tuberculosis and he'd come back after that year and that's when they were teaching him how to ride a bike and they said he ran straight into a stone house and he passed out and i feel for him because (laughs) there was one time when we were in france why did they stop him i uh, kids you know (laughs) maybe he was just going way too fast because i had that same sort of situation happen to me when i was about like eight years old we were at my grandparents house in france and they have this like steep hill going up the back of their house and i was riding a bike down it down the driveway and i started to lose control and then i swerved into some rose bushes so (laughs) it happens that's so sad then another incident was uh he fell head first into a gravel pit and he hit his head on an iron pipe and he began vomiting which you know when you get a concussion You start to get dizzy, vomit, things like that. So hitting your head on an iron pipe as you fall, that's, yeah, I would say that counts as head trauma. So there's also that aspect. One more part of his background that we're going to talk about is that around the age of 18, he met his first lover or his first love. His name was Tom. (laughs) His name was Tom and he worked at, he was the manager at an old folks home that Stuart was working at so the pair were together for about a year but Tom was said to have been troubled by his own sexuality so probably a lot of you know internalized homophobia that sort of thing one day Stuart came to work and he was told that Tom had hung himself and he was devastated understandably so because it's like when you hear something like that somebody you care about is just gone and you like that flips your world upside down you know yeah however that is not an excuse for his next behavior that we're gonna talk about <laughs> so we're gonna at least he didn't kill anybody <laughs> I, yeah but he's, he still did some some bad stuff so we're gonna we're gonna talk yeah, about what but... he, he did actually do <laughs> he did a murder so that's going for him that, yeah at least there's that you know But he started to get in legal trouble at the next couple months. I assume he was mourning. He was getting into drugs more heavily. Drugs can change how you behave, make you erratic, violent sometimes. You know, it's just depending on the type of drug, of course. So in 1969, after Tom's suicide, he was convicted of four sexual assaults against minors. Like I said, Ghetto. what happened does not excuse his behavior. But because it happened in the few months after that, I assume that was his reasoning. It's like he went into the drugs more heavily and all that. And then this happened as a result. So the final incident was with a nine-year-old boy who was a patient at the hospital. And... Mm-hmm. I guess he believed that he had killed him because there was blood coming out of his nose or something. So he ran. He didn't Like after he sexually assaulted him? Yeah. Because he had like put his hand over his mouth or something like that. The kid's mouth to keep him from screaming or something along those lines. I would have to look it back up. But it's in one of the sources that I have listed. And so there was blood coming out of the kid's nose. So he thought that he had killed him. So he ran. 
and that was like obviously he didn't actually kill the kid but he still you know sexually assaulted him so it's not great but after he was caught he was sent to a local mental hospital and he was in and out for residential treatment programs for the next couple of years during that time he was diagnosed uh this is latin so apologies (laughs) if i mispronounce it but i i should be okay pedophilia cum sadis sadismus uh which is sadistic pedophilia (laughs) so he was diagnosed with that i didn't look into that but i feel like it's pretty self-explanatory so if not you can look up what sadistic means and yeah in 1974, when he was 23, he met a student named Leonard. <laughs> See, this is the problem with Swedish names. There are no, like, there aren't enough vowels between letters. <laughs> so this one is H G L U N D. So Hoogland, I guess, at a gay hangout spot. They went back to Leonard's place where Stuart claims he sniffed some trichloroethylene while Leonard was in the bathroom. He ended up hallucinating because of that drug. He knew that you could hallucinate sometimes when you're on it. And normally, I guess it was like happy-go-lucky type of hallucinations, but this time it wasn't. Because Leonard came back from the bathroom and Stuart basically imagined that he was seeing a monster coming to attack him. So in order to defend himself, he stabbed Leonard repeatedly with a bread knife. Oh my god. He survived. Thank God. But he had been stabbed 12 times. He was stabbed in the liver, the intestines, the back, and his left lung was punctured. So I'm assuming a little bit in the chest area. Leonard said in later recounting of the event that he remembered watching Stuart wash off the knife and put it in his leather leather jacket before leaving him there. And the jacket was later found in a nearby canal. So, all right. Apparently, Stuart denied repeatedly throughout police interviews that he had done it but he did eventually confess to some sort of crazy thing that wasn't actually what happened I guess and Leonard said that Stewart never mentioned the drugs or the monster at the time that he was confessing to police so he believes that he's been lying basically about what had happened when that happened and so obviously he is very hurt by that and is bitter, which rightfully so, you stabbed the guy 12 times. I was about to say he did stab him. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's justified. So, again, he was returned to the mental hospital and he wasn't actually fully discharged until 1977, so that was a couple years later. In 1990, when he was 40 years old, he botched a local bank robbery, <laughs> dressed up as Santa Claus. <laughs> what? I guess they were Out of wearing... all the things to dress up as? I guess it, it was like Santa Claus masks or something like that. So he basically was doing this to feed his drug addiction. He and his robbery partner, who was only 18 years old, showed up at the bank manager's home at 545 in the morning and burst in with a gun and a knife, respectively. They herded the manager and his wife and his son into a room where Stuart went around stabbing the wall and the bed and knocking things over, you know, just causing a mess and screaming about how he had AIDS and only had a short time left on this uh, in his life. So he didn't care if they lived or died, basically trying to intimidate them and scare them. So the 18 year old took the bank manager to the bank to get the money while Stuart played guard of the wife and son. 
And obviously he was later caught the same day because it was a local bank. So they recognized him. <laughs> like, I mean, like, yeah. So he. I'm like, hey, that's Stuart. Yeah. He was sent back to the mental hospital rather than being sent to prison because he kind of like advocated for it. And I guess because he had a history of being sent to the mental hospital, they were just like, oh, yeah, this dude's this dude's nuts. Yeah. So after that botched robbery, he was incarcerated at uh, I think it's Soiter Hospital for psychiatric treatment in 1991. And he basically was there for the next, I think they said like 23 years. So he was apparently diagnosed with personality disorders. And if I saw that in a few places, but they didn't specify which ones. But I mean, based off of his behavior, I, I'd believe it. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. So we're going to go a little bit more into the Thomas Quick side of things now. Because while he was incarcerated, he decided to adopt the name Thomas Quick to kind of distance himself from who he used to be. Quick, I believe, was his mother's maiden name. So there's that's there's that reason for that. While he was there, he, throughout a series of therapy sessions, ended up confessing to over 30 murders, which is a lot of murders. I was about to say, that's a lot. Yeah. For, like, the above-average serial killer. <laughs> yeah, because usually it's about, like, I don't know, like, 9, 10, somewhere around that range as, like, yeah. a max. So, But 30 is a... That's a lot. Just a little bit. He claimed to have maimed, raped, and eaten the remains of his victims. Oh. During one of these sessions, he... Well, many of the sessions, he was under the influence of narcotic strength drugs... I guess the reasoning for that was that therapists there believed he had extremely repressed traumatic memories that were riddled with inconsistencies. So the drugs were supposed to help calm him down enough to get him to hmm. go through these sessions and pull out the, the information more easily because he wasn't like as anxious or tightly wound, so to speak. Well, but if anybody has studied psychology, they probably know that it's things like this and hypnosis therapy I think where somebody goes under and then it's possible to kind of like influence them into saying things mm -hmm. so this practice has been discredited since but we're going to go a little bit more into that later so in these sessions he also claimed to have been sexually abused by his father growing up as well as emotionally verbally and physically abused by his mother he said that his mother at one point had walked in on one instance of him being sexually abused around the age of four and miscarried a child, and she always blamed him for it. He said that there were two occasions where she tried to kill him. That was detailed in the book that he published in the midst of the trials, I believe, but don't quote me on that because I didn't read that because that was in Swedish. So, His siblings, however, deny that any of this happened. His older brother said, quote, I'm not suggesting that we grew up in a perfect family, but none of us siblings have memories that back up his story, unquote. His eldest brother, Sten Ove, wrote a book entitled My Brother Thomas Quick, where he explained how he knew when he'd heard of an unnamed man in that mental hospital had claimed responsibility for the murder of a young boy, that he was certain it was his brother. So... Obviously, they believed that it was possible that their brother could get violent. And his twin sister mentioned well, he was manipulative. Yeah, I mean, he did stab somebody. You're not so. wrong. 
<laughs> you're not wrong. So there was also the fact that he could be manipulative and things like that. And this next part kind of speaks to that. After his older brother said that, Quick decided he was going to send threatening letters to hit to his brother and his wife, claiming that Stenova oh. had been abusing their daughter. Oh, God. He also apparently told the police that his brother was an accomplice in one of the murders. And when he didn't get a response to those threatening letters, he eventually called the hospital where his brother was about to have heart surgery and said, quote, I hope your rotten heart will implode so that you die, unquote. Oh, my God. So he's got some issues. So, oh, yeah, just a little. Many of the murders he had confessed to had been unsolved up to the point of him confessing to them. So obviously everybody's like eager to get these cases closed. They're like, oh, we finally have answers, you know? Yeah. The very first murder that he confessed to was that of Johann Asplund. He was an 11-year-old boy who had gone to school in November of 1990, and he disappeared. His body has never been found. I don't know if it has been since, but when I was looking through all of this, Nothing mentioned that his body was found. So Quick claimed to have picked Johan up outside school, lured him into his car before taking him to a wooded area and raping him. He then claims he panicked and strangled Johan, followed by dismembering him and burying the body parts so no one could find them. Forensic technicians. I know, right? I'm just like, bruh, that's, that's intense. Like, how do you just forget that you murdered 30 people and then it's about (laughs) and then it's like all right dog detailed like this you know yeah so forensic technicians scoured the area he claimed to have buried the body parts and found nothing so red flag number one but we're gonna keep going (laughs) johan's parents bjorn and anna clara didn't believe that he was the one who did it from the start they had always believed that it was an ex-partner of Anna Clara's who wanted revenge for the breakup. And that ex oh. had actually been found guilty, I think, in like a civil suit and was sentenced to like two years or something. But it was later appealed. So he only ended up serving one. Hmm. And then another reason they cited was that typically with child victims, the perpetrators almost always somebody that is cl- a close relation to them. So like a family friend or at least somebody who knows them. Not always, but a lot of the time. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, because, I mean, it's similar with murder in general, is that usually when you're murdered, you know the person who murdered you. Not always, obviously, but most of the time it's somebody that you know, which is why, for example, like the spouse is usually the person who gets questioned first. first. Yes, (laughs) suspect. Yeah, they go basically from the inside circle to the out and do it that way so at first his identity was being kept out of the media because i guess legal and ethical reasons but he attempted an escape from the hospital on july 4th of 1994 and then his information was published so essentially what happened that day was while he was being escorted by a nurse to a lunch that was at the golf club restaurant he claimed he needed to use the bathroom so he went behind a rundown building to do that, and when he was out of sight, he ran along a path into the woods until he came upon the road where there were two individuals who were waiting there for him in a getaway car. So this gets uh, wor- this gets better. I know. Like as he goes. <laughs> it's like it's just so ridiculous to me. That's why I kept like there's just so much here. I'm like, how 
what? <laughs> so at this point, he had already confessed to five murders total. So this is still pretty early on. Basically, in the car, he like shaved, you know, he kind of changed his appearance so that people wouldn't recognize him because the media obviously was reporting about him and his appearance and things like that. So he's trying to yeah. be sneaky. So sneak a snake. Overall, I think he was missing for about a day and a half before he used a payphone at a gas station to turn himself in. Oh, okay. So, allegedly, he claims that the only reason he ran was because he intended to kill himself. This is a quote from him. So, quote, After I had parted from my companion, I sat for 13 hours with a sauna shotgun pointing at my forehead, but I couldn't do it. Today, I can take responsibility for yesterday, and I think it was this sense of responsibility that stopped me ending my life and made me telephone the police to ask to be arrested. This is what I want to believe, unquote. So, right, bestie. Yeah, I'm like, so you went through all that trouble to devise this escape plan, and then you just were like, eh, never mind. Maybe later. So the media decided to dub him the cannibal because he mentioned that he ate parts of his victims or whatever. And he was a large media spectacle at the time. Like, apparently this was one of the biggest cases in Sweden's history, obviously, because he's confessed to murdering 30-something people. And a lot of these were unsolved cases that had become, like, big news. Yeah. So even though he confessed to over 30 of them, he was only found guilty of eight of the murders he confessed to committing. And then suddenly, in 2001... He stopped cooperating with police and withdrew from the public eye. Oh. That was quite mysterious. He said at the time, he said his reasoning, uh, because I guess he sent in an article to a newspaper, because there's a lot of criticism from people who were like, I don't know if I believe this guy. He's, you know, like searching for attention. Things don't add up. So he wrote... I guess sort of like a letter to the editor type thing where he was like, you guys who are saying that I'm not (laughs) the people who are basically saying that I'm lying are the liars, the attention seekers and the controversy surrounding his guilt. And he just continued to insist that he wasn't the one lying. They were lying. And it's like projection much. So after he d- disappeared from the public eye, he also changed his name back to his birth name. So it was just like slowly name changing. Yeah. So it's like something was clearly going on at this point. And we'll talk about that later. But in 2008, this is when the controversy really started to pick up. Documentarian Hans Rastam began to look deeper into Thomas Quick and his murders, poring over the more than 50,000 documents associated with the cases, as well as going to interview him. He came to the conclusion that there was no actual evidence, aside from his confessions, to Thomas Quick having actually committed the murders. And we'll get right to that after a quick word about our sponsors. Guess what, guys? We have an exciting announcement. We're so excited to announce that Shockingly Wicked is going to be attending the True Crime Podcast Festival on August 26th through the 28th in Dallas, Texas. It's being held at the Weston Park Central Hotel in Dallas, 
And this festival is specific to true crime and paranormal podcasts. You can come hang out with us and even find a new show you might like to listen to. There will also be panel discussions and live episodes you can't hear anywhere else. We will also have a table in the vendors area where we will be selling merch, so you don't want to miss out on that. Come hang out with us. Go to the website, truecrimepodcastfestival.com, to find more information. They still have some early bird tickets available, and prices will go up the closer that we get to the event, so you don't want to wait. We can't wait to see you there. It's important to note that false confessions are a common occurrence. Not all the time, but... They happen a lot. So there was a case, I think, in the area around this time that had resulted in that, that he was actually investigating. So he was already kind of in that mindset of like looking to see if any of this actually lined up or if this was another instance where he was being pressured by police or, you know, tricked by them to confess to these unsolved crimes just so that they could close the case. So that's the kind of mindset he was going into this with. Yeah. So... Obviously, he wasn't the first to doubt the stories, but he, I think, did the most research and essentially broke the case. So essentially what his evaluation did was it revealed there was no DNA, no murder weapons, and no eyewitnesses to any of the murders that he was actually convicted of. So one such example is that he had confessed to having sex with a 23-year-old woman named Gree Storvik in Norway in june of 1985 before murdering her and first of all doesn't really track because you know he knew he was gay at 14 is it possible he's bisexual of course but i think he would have like he would have said that he was yeah and also up to this point he had talked really only mentioned like boys that he had murdered and you know things like that so There's that inconsistency, but there were also traces of sperm that were left on her body and in her body that were tested against his DNA and they were not a match. Courts, however, still found him guilty of the murder. That's one side of the controversy. The other, the confessions themselves were never consistent. An example of this is when he confessed in 1996 to murdering Therese Johansson in Norway in 1988. He claimed Therese was blonde and lived in a rural village, but actually she was brunette and lived in a high-rise building in an urbanized area. So it's like just details that obviously weren't matching up. It didn't fit. He was just kind of making it up as he was going along. And then uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it later, but... It was heavily televised when he was taken to Norway to the lake that he claimed he threw her body into. And they Mm. spent seven weeks draining the lake and found nothing. Okay, at that point, I've been like, this man cannot be trusted. Yeah, but the police were just so insistent that he was actually guilty of this. So they continued to kind of like push and we'll talk more about kind of what happened in that time. But in the nearby wooded area, they found what they believed at the time to be a bone fragment. They even had people like some experts or whatever, analyze it. And they said it was a bone fragment from a child. However, it actually like they reevaluate, not them, but some other scientists reevaluated it later. And it was just a composite piece of wood, plastic and glue. All right. Then. So regardless, he was still found guilty of that murder. 
Another example is that he claimed to have killed an Israeli backpacker named Yenon Levy. He was asked what murder weapon he was what he had used. He went through like six different murder weapons before he finally landed on the correct one. So he had said like a camping axe, a shovel, a carjack, and a few other things before he finally landed on a wooden club. So it was kind of like why he would say these things. And and like, I don't remember if it was the therapist or the police people or whatever, but they would just kind of be like, you know, they were kind of like <laughs> guiding him in the right direction, if that makes sense. So these instances were never seen as being wrong by the investigators because they simply chalked it up to like the torment and guilt, making it difficult for him to, you know, fully acknowledge what he'd done. So he was like slowly bringing the memories back. (laughs) And then another thing is that the modus operandi wasn't consistent. For those who don't know what a modus operandi is, typically for serial killers, they have some type of pattern to their kills so often it's either the method of how they kill the type of victims or the location of their hunting grounds so to speak there was none of that he confessed to killing men and women he confessed to killing adults and children using a variety of weapons and the locations were scattered across sweden and even parts of norway so like He's basically just picking random cases all over the place that don't tie in I together. Mean, but why did they not under why did they not get this? I don't understand. I I don't know. He also had alibis for some of the murders. <laughs> like <laughs> the murders he didn't commit. So there was one what? where he con- yeah. He confessed to killing a teenage boy in 1964 when he was 14. So the statute of limitations on this one was up. So he never was actually like found guilty of this one, but people were like, "Oh, it it totally happened because he said it happened." But right. the day that he was supposedly murdered, Stewart was at a Holy Communion with his twin sister about 250 miles away, and there is photographic proof of him being at this communion. So it just seemed like nobody was really doing the deep dive that they were supposed to to figure these things out. So the journalist confronted Stewart about his findings, and that's when he admitted to having fabricated the whole story. Oh, okay. So (laughs) when he was asked why he confessed... He said that it was because he wanted to belong to something. To murder? So clearly he he has a lot of insecurity issues. Well, he kind of explains it, and I'll I'll read this quote. But he changed his name to Thomas Quick, I think, earlier, because he wanted to distance himself from his failures as who he, like, his actual self. He also started therapy sessions while he was in the mental hospital and he said that he felt like a failure because he couldn't remember much of his childhood and that he wasn't an interesting patient because his therapist wasn't really paying attention which to me just means that he had a really (laughs) shitty therapist (laughs) so this is a quote directly from him he said quote i was a very lonely person when it all started I was in a place with violent criminals, and I noticed that the worse or more violent or serious the crime, the more interest someone got from the psychiatric personnel. I also wanted to belong to that group, to be an interesting person in here, unquote. So basically, in a bid for more attention from the people at the mental hospital, he started off by, quote, remembering, you know, a sexual assault by his father, which made his therapist more engaged and interested. So it kind of just spiraled from there where 
he started to say worse and worse things. Mm -hmm. He had actually was about to be released, I think, in 1994. So, like, right before he confessed to that first murder. He essentially just didn't want to be released. So he... Because the reason why he didn't was because he hadn't spoken to pretty much the majority of his family since 1984. Both of his parents were dead. He didn't really have any sort of connections or anywhere to go. So he didn't want to be released. And so that's when he started to come up with this idea like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to make it so that they can't let me go. So All right. in 1992, he was on a supervised swimming trip at the lake beside the hospital, and he posed a question to one of the nurses there about what they would think of him if he'd done something really serious. What the fuck is wrong with this man? Yeah. So in subsequent therapy sessions, he claimed to have committed the murder of Johann Asplund, and things kind of spiraled from there. People didn't believe him right away because the case was a famous one in Sweden, And it actually took about eight years for his account of the murder to actually be cohesive enough for them to prosecute him for it. It's like, I feel like that should have been, you know, a flag right there. Yeah. If it took you eight years. Just a little. Just a little flag. And keep in mind, this is all without any actual, like, physical proof. This is just, like, his confession and his story. If it takes you eight years to get this put together, then maybe it's not true. So one of the researchers that was working with Hans, uh, her name is Jenny Kutim. She is quoted as saying, quote, the worst part is that because of people not doing their job, there are a lot of killers out there who never got caught or faced justice, unquote, which is true. Yeah, but this isn't even a killer. No, I know. She's basically just saying that because he had confessed to it, the police were focusing so much on him and trying to convict him for this that they weren't looking at any other suspects. So there are all of these people who were murdered and nobody is actually going to face consequences for what they did because well, the police... Well, most of the time they don't even... So. You're not wrong. So the reason why he actually withdrew... Like, the actual reason why he withdrew from the public in 2001 is because a new clinical director came to the hospital... And he was stunned at the medicine dosages that all the patients were getting. And he basically just changed everything and changed all the drug regimens. So, for example, Stewart's daily intake was six, five milligrams of Valium, four, one milligram Xanaxes, one, 10 milligram prefill Valium, 1.5 milligram Halcyon, two, Rohypnol, six, Trio Comp, and six, Panacod. And he could also request for more. So, like, that's a lot of drugs. Keep in mind, he was already an addict, so obviously he's probably going to ask for more because he wants the drugs. <laughs> Once he stopped taking all of the medications is when he stopped confessing. So he said, quote, the lies were completely dependent on the benzos, unquote. took about eight months for him to completely be weaned off from the drugs and once he was he was no longer numb to the effect that his words and actions were having on other people so here's another quote quote yes i did think of them but i didn't in a way i was ruthless but that was also one of the effects of the benzos it meant i could ignore any compassion unquote and there were apparently times where he tried to come clean, like when the drugs would kind of wear off. He would try to come clean or he tried to commit suicide because he was horrified about what he was doing. But then he would get more pills and that feeling went away. So, quote, this is the most difficult part to explain. There was an awareness that it was lies. 
At the same time, I was living in this role as Thomas Quick, and in this role, I could forget that awareness. During the Thomas Quick years, I tried to hang myself. I banged my head against the wall until it bled. In the nights, I would wake up screaming, no! In the middle of the nights, there was an awareness that it was all make-believe. And then when I woke up, I got a dose of benzo, and I could forget it and push it aside, unquote. So, one of the major critics of Stur's story was uh, Leif G.W. Pearson. And he said, quote, Thomas Quick is just a pathetic pedophile. By managing to get the bastard convicted... Somebody said it. (laughs) The police, prosecutors, and therapists have only helped protect the real murderers. It's a sad story. I'd even call it the greatest miscarriage of justice we've ever seen in this country. Remember, there's not a shred of evidence against Thomas Quick except his confessions, unquote. And in spite of all of that, there are still some who were involved in the case who believe that everything was handled well and that he is actually guilty of these murders that he confessed to. One of the people was a Supreme Court judge named Goran Lambert. He conducted a week-long review of the Quick case in 2006 when he was the attorney general at the time. So he conducted a week-long review of the Quick case in 2006 when he was the attorney general and he didn't find any issues with the findings of the case. He claims that even though there wasn't any physical evidence, Quick had given details that only the killer would know. And then another person Yeah, because he got them from his mind because he's fucking crazy. (laughs) Actually, I'm going to talk about this in just a second, but another person who still believes that he's guilty is the prosecutor, obviously, because he doesn't want to think he did anything wrong, but he was very arrogant about the way that he said it. So... (laughs) The way that Thomas Quick got this information was because everything that he would say was in the public domain already. (laughs) He'd read up on the cases when he was allowed, because he was allowed to go on day trips at the time. So he would go to the public library, basically, or the Royal Library in Stockholm. And (laughs) he would basically just read the newspaper there. You know, like he would pull up the microfiches of old newspapers. He would take down details and then he would later confess in therapy sessions, like some of these details. You know how, did you know how um, often that happens though? That's really not like something that is just cray cray. Yeah. And also his day privileges weren't taken away until after he had confessed to six murders so like keep that in mind (laughs) there's just a there's just a lot of like mishandling of of everything in this instance little bit little bit nar babes (laughs) this is another quote from him he said quote i didn't need to do much to tell the stories usually a single newspaper article would be enough the rest of the information always came during the interrogations from the police therapists or different people on the investigations team i knew i just had to listen to pay attention unquote like they like i said earlier they were kind of like feeding him information in the way that they answer or ask questions kind of like the reactions to his comments and the way he'd respond it was just it was not handled well we'll just put it at that so Johan Asplund's parents realized at one point that a lot of the information that they had been giving to the police was then suddenly remembered by Quick in therapy sessions a few weeks later. So at one point, they tried to be like as vague as possible. I think they were trying to figure out if there were any distinguishing marks on his body, if I remember right. And he did have a distinctive birthmark or something on his right butt cheek or something. And I know that I shouldn't laugh at that, but it was just very specific. So... 
they tried to be as vague as possible, but then the police like kept insisting that they needed to know in case he like said it or whatever. And they basically kind of like threatened to take them to court for quote protecting a murderer unquote if they didn't cooperate. So. Of course, they drew out the little design or whatever of what it looked like. And then a couple of weeks later, he mysteriously remembered this birthmark. So. <laughs> oh my God. I hate people. <laughs> Me too. So when his day trip privileges were taken away, he still had access to newspapers in the hospital. So he would use the speculation written about other old unsolved cases that people would write about. And because they would be like, oh, was he involved in these? And so then, of course, he would take them the details that they put in the newspaper. And then he would like confess to those a couple weeks later after it wasn't like right in the people's minds, you know, so it didn't seem too obvious. So it was just like, dog, what are y'all doing? Yeah. So during these therapy sessions, I think I mentioned before, and also when he was out on these crime scene reconstructions, they would take him on. He was heavily drugged. So basically taken in high dosages, these benzos can lead those with poor impulse control to release their inhibitions. And I realized when I wrote that, it made me think of release your inhibitions, feel the rain on your skin. No one else can feel it for you. (laughs) Don't even get me started. That song was my jam when it came out. So, like I said before, he's an addict already, so this is what he was saying. He said, quote, A lot happened inside of me. I'd get high, I'd get a kick, and then I'd have lots of fantasies. My imagination would run wild. In one sense, they gave me a lot of creativity. It was like a vicious circle. The more I told, the more attention I got from the therapists and the police and the memory experts, and that meant I also got more drugs, unquote. So, literally, (laughs) they were encouraging the behavior and of course somebody who's an addict they're gonna do what they need to do to get more drugs so that's literally what he was doing Mm -hmm. they were rewarding him with more drugs so he was obviously gonna keep confessing because it got him his supply like this case kind of irritates me i ain't even gonna lie i do not blame you because it's it's just crazy to me that there's such incompetence (laughs) that nobody saw all of these pieces because it was the same group of people who was looking into all of these murders. It wasn't like there was different teams, you know? So yeah, it was a lot of information, but you would think that because they're taking this information down at some point, somebody would have been like, Hey, this doesn't add up. So he takes the blame obviously for what he did. Like he acknowledges that what he did was awful by confessing to all these things. You think so? However, he does also, (laughs) he does also point the finger at police and at the clinic for not doing their jobs properly either, which kind of helped further along the process, which I agree with because like the people who were treating him, I mentioned before that they would kind of have him under these drugs when he was in therapy sessions and they were following this uh, now discredited practice called recovered memory therapy at the behest of, uh, I think it's Mar- Margit Norrell, something like that. Sorry. Basically, the style of therapy means that a patient is induced either through hypnosis or dream interpretation or something to recall instances of trauma, which often it's early years sexual abuse, of which they previously had no recollection. And if you remember, like I said earlier, with hypnosis, it's very easy to to suggest something that suddenly becomes kind of like their idea. It's kind of like the concept behind Inception, if anybody has seen that. I love you if you have. I mean, I'm sure many people have because it was a popular movie, but it's one of my favorites. What is it about? 
basically they find a way to go into people's dreams and plant ideas to make it seem like it was their own. So it's essentially... It kind of sounds like the butterfly effect. Yeah, a little bit. But um, it was a very good movie. I enjoyed it. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Obviously, in this case, he was being induced by the high doses of benzos that he was getting. And the childhood sexual abuse claims mentioned earlier, like he had no recollection of them before these therapy sessions. And then suddenly he's getting these drugs, you know, and he becomes more interesting when he starts talking about these awful things that have happened to him. So this this uh, Norrell person didn't actually treat him directly, but she supervised and directed the team who was treating him. So in a way, she's responsible for that because she was a big proponent of this type of therapy. And obviously, the police also should have thoroughly vetted the information that they were getting from him and actually looked at the evidence, which there was none, to prove the case. <laughs> and so also, it didn't happen. Yeah, like... They also shouldn't have been asking leading questions because I feel like that's like policing 101. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) But I guess they do it differently in Sweden. All of that to say, he didn't do any of it. He made it all up. And everybody else just tripped over themselves to fall and fall for it. So a few months after Stuart confessed, he there were two documentaries that aired, I believe just in Sweden, but it basically helped to shift the public's opinion on his guilt like people were starting to be like oh maybe he didn't actually do this so he recanted all of the confessions in one of those documentaries as well so Stuart sent postcards to each of his siblings and basically it only said like forgive me in Swedish his older brother it took him some time to actually respond which is completely understandable because like the last the last conversation he had with him his brother was saying i hope your heart implodes so that you die yeah like that that's that's a lot to kind of work your way from but anybody who has a family member or something who deals with mental illness knows that it's it it's always like a push and shove game almost it's it can be very difficult to live with but you also acknowledge to a degree it's not necessarily their fault like there is obviously a level of culpability because it if it took him i don't even remember how long it took him but it took a while for him to actually like apologize for what he did he could have done that sooner but he didn't but then also you have to keep in mind like he has disorders he's clearly got a whole lot going on with this addiction stuff like he's got a lot going on in his head it's a darker place so i don't necessarily blame his brother for taking a while but he did eventually respond and he said he forgived him and they have since re-established a relationship so they actually wrote a book together that was published in 2011 called thomas quick is dead i didn't read it because it was also in swedish but the book that Rashtam wrote was published in 2012 and accomplished similar outcomes to the documentaries that helped basically open the case, made people realize, oh, that he didn't actually do this. Because he lays out all of the information, like he the interview, basically going through each of the cases that he confessed to. And being like, this is what they found. This is how this whole thing went down. Basically, it just wasn't done well. 
that's yeah. the book that I was in the middle of reading that I didn't actually finish. So I am going to finish that because I want to see more of what what was actually done throughout the whole thing. But that was actually published po- posthumously because he passed away from his battle with cancer literally the day after he finished writing it. Aww. So he never got to see it published, but it it did get published. And in 2013, Stuart had been acquitted of all the murder charges for which he was convicted. He was released in 2014 after the court ruled he no longer needed to be held in a secure unit, but he would still need to receive psychiatric care and abstain from drugs and alcohol. Of course, like that makes sense because he's clearly not good when he's on drugs. So I mean, yeah, clearly he now lives alone in Southern Sweden He published a book in 2017 titled Only I Know Who I Am. Obviously, that was also in Swedish. These are just the English titles of these books. In 2018, there was a television drama that was based on the case that was released in Sweden. So it was on Swedish TV. It's since been released on various on-demand platforms as The Truth Will Out. I don't know if it was like if they have like subtitles or if it's been dubbed or anything like that i don't know where you can find it but it's out there somewhere in the world there was also a swedish film that was released in 2019 called the perfect patient where it depicts the uh basically the interview between hans rostam and Sturbergwell. so that's out there that's basically everything but i think one of the worst things about this whole situation other than the fact that he literally like led the police on because he was trying to get more drugs it's just the fact that it opened a lot of old wounds for the victims families yeah. for no reason got their hopes up for no reason one of the people who's written a book about this called the man who stopped lying uh, his name is dan josephson he said quote the real victims in the systemic collapse are the relatives of the murdered They had to sit through the trials and listen to this man orate about the heinous things he supposedly did to their children. It's practically psychological terror. At the same time, the real murderers have been able to breathe out, unquote. So because the police were so focused on him as a suspect, even though none of the evidence really pointed towards that, they could have potentially missed any evidence that pointed to anybody else. Yeah. So... If anything, like, obviously, he was a victim in the sense that he got convicted of eight murders he didn't commit. However, he set himself up. Yeah, he's not a victim because he did this to himself because of his insecurities, because he wanted to be important and interesting and whatnot. So it's it's an interesting case, like. I feel bad for him on one on one side, but on the other side of me, I'm just like, dude, you fucked I don't feel up bad for him. so many people's lives. I I only feel bad in the sense that he felt the need to do that, I guess. And like mm-hmm. it's maybe not even feeling bad for him necessarily. But yeah, it's this whole case was just interesting to me. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance in there because a lot of the time when there is such a miscarriage of justice, it's like there's obviously one side good, one side bad, you know. But this time it's like everybody's kind of everybody kind of sucks in this instance. Yeah. So that was the case of Thomas Quick, the serial oh, killer who was not. <laughs> so obviously there's 
yeah, it's it was wild. And obviously there's more information out there about like the specific crimes and murders that he said he committed, especially in the book. I highly recommend reading it. I found it it was on Kindle Unlimited, so I just I was able to get it for free to read. So highly recommend reading it, checking it out. It's a very interesting read. I just <laughs> I I cannot get myself to do anything on time basically so that's why i didn't finish <laughs> so yeah that was crazy so you can find us on social media we are on instagram at shockingly wicked podcast we are on twitter at wicked podcast one we are on tiktok at shockingly wicked and we are also on youtube and facebook at shockingly wicked podcast you can find us on our website which is shockingly wicked or shockingly wicked podcast.com we are also on patreon at shockingly wicked podcast if you sign up, you will get some free swag. You will get a personalized greeting from us. You'll get early access to episodes with no ads, so you won't have to hear any of that stuff, but you might miss out. You never know. <laughs> You'll get access to full interview videos, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff. So go check it out. And there's three different tiers. There's $3, $11, $22. You'll also be the first to get access to merch sales and things like that when we announce merch and festivals and things like that so go check it out thank you for whoever does decide to sign up any money you give to us through patreon is going right back into the podcast and making it better for you if you have any case suggestions you can reach out to us through the contact form on our website or at shockingly wicked podcast at gmail.com and i believe that is everything so thanks Bye. for listening Bye. <laughs>